Today's video was recorded on August 24, 2023. And today's lesson is part of our Bible 101 series. In this one, we're exploring the first century historical and cultural context of the phrase good news. What do you mean by the good news? What did the phrase good news communicate in the first century? And then in this lesson, we're going to go back and we're going to look at these temples or shrines that were built to honor Caesar Augustus by Herod the Great, and they're built in the land of Israel. So in our previous lesson, that was part four of our series, we were exploring what's called the imperial cult. And the imperial cult is the sanctioned worship of the Caesar. And this is exactly what Jesus, the disciples, and Paul are confronting as they go out into that Roman Empire. And so today's lesson, then, we're going to go into that land of Israel and we're going to see how this worship of Caesar even found its way there. Now, there's a recent archaeological discovery, and by recent, I mean 1998, but it's really cool because it's changed the way scholars read one of the Jesus stories in our Gospels. I say this each week, but make sure you download the handout. You can find the link below. It's in the show notes. That'll take you to our website where we have the download. But downloading that handout, it'll help you with your studies. There are a number of references included. It will really help solidify your knowledge base. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson. This is on the imperial cult making its way into the land of Israel. And then we're going to see how Jesus is training his disciples as they're going to have to go out into the Roman Empire, and they're going to have to confront the cult of Caesar, who is also claiming to be son of God, savior of the world, and that his birth was good news for all creation. And they're going to go out and say, no, 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 the real deal is Jesus of Nazareth, whom God resurrected from the dead, and then is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, which means he is reigning right now, and that's the kingdom that's in charge. Okay, folks, we are going to continue on through our series here about the good news and how the good news is about the kingdom of God that's reigning right now here on earth. And today we're going to look at how the imperial cult that we looked at last week, we'll do a quick review in a minute ends up being inside the land of Israel. And I'll show you how that happened. Okay, and the place we're going to end up, and what you see here on the screen, is really cool, because it's a very recent archaeological discovery. And what's so important about this is 26 years ago, we didn't even know this was here. We couldn't have this Bible lesson today, because we didn't know this existed. And that's very cool, because more and more stuff is uncovered in Israel helps us understand our Bible. And what you're seeing here is a place that today it's known as Amrit. And so if you want to look up, if you Google Amrit Israel, you'll find the site, you'll find the website that talks about this particular archaeological find. Okay? Now we're in the Bible 101 series. This is part five, exploring what that first century context was of the good news. What did they understand the good news was? And it's the kingdom of God. Now, part of the reason, part of the reason 
that this does not get emphasized today is that when the church, especially because I'm in, a United, I'm in the United States and speaking from the Western culture, which is European, followed by coming to the United States in the West, that church was essentially in charge through the Middle Ages and on into modern day. And the church said, we are the kingdom of God. And everybody scratched their head and said, really? Have you looked outside lately? Have you seen what's happening in the world? This is the kingdom of God? And then by the time we get to the Reformation and the emphasis of Protestants is it becomes about, well, it's something later. Yes, it's not the kingdom of God here on earth, but eventually you'll go to heaven and it becomes all about salvation and we lose sight of the kingdom. All right, and that's the good news because back then it's relevant. And I think really what Jesus is saying is it's a spiritual kingdom. The, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns in somebody's life. And so it doesn't matter who's in charge. When you place your faith in Jesus, the kingdom comes here on earth. It's a little bit of why we don't really talk about it today. But let's go back. Let's do a review of the imperial cult. So last week, we looked at what's called the Roman imperial cult. That's the state-sanctioned worship of Caesar as a god. Now, not only as divine, but as Savior and the Son of God. And that Son of God, that provides his divine status. And what you see over and over is in their propaganda is that the Caesar has the favor of the heavens, and so he's able to keep things in perfect order. And so this is the greater context of what's happening in that first century. Jesus is fully aware of it, as we'll see tonight. The disciples are aware of it. Paul is aware of it. It's the world that they live in. And that's why when we looked last week, if you haven't seen that one, it would be very helpful to go back and check it out. Because when we talk tonight, if you didn't see that first one, when we talk in this lesson, well, it might sound a little bit strange, but the disciples, uh, the gospel writers, the disciples, Paul, they recognize an issue of kingdom. And so what we saw last week was the language that they choose when they're writing is kingdom language. They're forcing you to consider who's in charge, who's king, Caesar or Jesus, and you have to decide. And of course, there are implications to your decision. We'll see that tonight. Okay, and then we'll see in this lesson that there were temples built specifically for the worship of the Caesars, and they even made it into Israel. And so I'll show you that Herod the Great he built three temples to Caesar Augustus in his kingdom, what I'll call the land of Israel, and I understand that it's not exactly first century, it was divided up, and it's not what it is today, but I'm just going to use the land of Israel. But you can imagine, how did those religious Jews, or the zealots, well, particularly the zealots, how did they react to their king creating temples to a Caesar, an emperor, who said that he was also God. And so, this becomes a critical, hyper-aware of what the propaganda of Rome is saying, okay? 
And I also suggested, well, let me go on. So here's, here's what we looked at last week, titles and events. He's called the Son of God. That goes back to Julius Caesar became divine, and then he gets the powers from heaven as the Son of God. He's divine. Let me show you, I didn't put this up last week, but this week, this is the Athena temple at Priene. This is where we were last week. And there's an inscription on this temple. And there's many inscriptions around Asia Minor that mention that Caesar Augustus is both divine and the Son of God. So that was very common. But here's what it says. On that temple, it says, The people have erected this temple for Athena Polias, and the divine emperor Caesar Augustus, son of God. So that was right there on the open. That's the way they talk about the Caesar. Okay, and that's Caesar Augustus who's reigning when Jesus is born. Okay, so he's son of God. He's divine. He's a savior. And I mentioned this last week. This was nothing new for the kings, especially the kings of the East. Uh, they were always portrayed as the one who can deliver you and fix all things, right? And that's very similar to even what our politicians say today. We have the power to bring perfect order. If you'd simply elect me, I have the power to fix everything. And then some people actually become fanatical, and they believe that that's true about a politician. But we see over and over and over the failure of that. And that was happening in that first century, the failure of the Caesars. And then we looked at last week that inscription from Priene, and it mentions that the birth of Caesar Augustus was good news for the world. His birth was to usher in a new era. They were going to change their calendar to celebrate this new era. And then finally, we have uh, the Caesars. Now there's more. And check out the article that I put last week. Um, both on, our, on the website and in the YouTube notes or on the podcast notes, that the Caesars had an advent, or what in Greek is called parousia. And this is the arrival of, or the coming again, of the king. It's the king showing up again. And so you find these stories, or even uh, parables that Jesus tells, and it's about the arrival of a king what it means when the king comes back to judge his people. And that's Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. It's the time of judgment. The king has returned. He's, he's the representative of God as the king, but he's sharing a throne, as we saw in Daniel 7. And so again, we have to recognize that the writers of our New Testament, they're fully aware of the cultural language and what this means when they use it regarding Jesus. So let me give you an example, okay? Because once you start seeing these examples in the text, they'll jump out at you. But this comes from the book of Acts. And so Acts is about the kingdom of God. I'll show you that next week. Acts is about the kingdom of God. It's going into the world. And of course, it's going to collide with the Caesar. And so Paul is in Thessalonica. They're, of course, creating some turmoil at what they're announcing. And so here's verse, um, it's... 6, 7, and 8. Check out Acts 17, 6, 7, and 8. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is what they're saying about the Christians. And then it says, these all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So notice they're mentioning the Caesar at the time, which is probably Claudius. And what is there? What is contrary? 
saying there is another king, Jesus. That is the problem. If you declare Jesus is Lord, then you're saying that the Caesar is not. And now we have a confrontation brewing. And of course, verse 8 says, The crowd and the rulers of the city were troubled when they heard these things. Of course, what would happen if Rome were to crack down on us because we're allowing these people who are subverting the Roman message to continue on? We can't do that. Remember, Rome is going to say, hey, look, we'll bring peace, but it's always under their boot with the threat of violence, right? It's war and victory and then peace. So you can see right here, once you start to see these things throughout the, the book of Acts and the Gospels, and you start thinking kingdom, it all starts to make more sense than simply our truncated good news that we talk about today. Again, history of the church, no time to talk about that, but it does have to do with the way that we, but it does have to do with the way that we view the church, the kingdom, and at least the cosmos today. So, okay, so that's review. And then what I want to do today is then we have to take that imperial cult and we have to say, ah, it shows up now in, in Israel. This imperial cult was not excluded from Israel. It isn't like Jesus doesn't know what's happening. It, doesn't, it isn't like the disciples don't know what's happening. You know, the, D Jesus has to deal with the zealots. The zealots want to become violent to stop the kingdom of Rome. And Jesus keeps telling him, no, that's not the path to peace. You think you can become violent and find peace. You won't. So it's right there. And I'll show you tonight. I think Jesus is fully engaging this idea uh, in one of the stories that we'll look at. All right, well, how did we get here? Well, it goes back to a relationship between Caesar Augustus and King Herod. And so Herod was the client king over Israel. Okay, so you have Caesar Augustus. He reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. Now, this overlapped with King Herod. And Herod. Herod reigned over an expanded location. First, Herod reigned over Galilee. Then he was eventually given Judea from 37 BC to 4 BC. And King Herod is a client king of the Roman Empire. And then he works very hard with his patron, Augustus, because that's who's going to keep him in power. And so, one thing that Augustus relies upon, Herod, is to keep down the nonsense over there with those people who don't like the Roman Empire. And so King Herod and his troops are brutal when it comes to keeping down tax revolts, when the zealots begin to become revolutionary. It's King Herod who's going to lay down the line, and he's doing that on behalf of Augustus. Now, there are other things that actually happened that, are, that were good for the Jewish people, but the point is, is that we have Augustus and King Herod, and they rely on each other, and then King Herod is going to want to honor Augustus, the one who gives him the power. Now, we know from a, he's a, uh, well, he ended up being a Roman historian. We know him as Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Now, he's not Roman. He was actually a Jewish freedom fighter. He was born 
a Jew. He was a freedom fighter in the war against Rome. But then when he was captured, he made a deal to become a historian for the Romans. He even he took on the name Flavius from the Flavian dynasty, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. So he takes on that Roman name. Anyways, he's a prolific writer. It's a gigantic work of history of the Jewish people and then the wars against Rome. Now, from Josephus' writing and archaeology, we know that Caesar Augustus built three shrines or temples to, or I'm sorry, I said that wrong. King Herod built three shrines or temples to Caesar Augustus. Okay? Now, the first one, we'll go over these in a minute, I'll show you on a map, is at Caesarea Maritime. Now, Caesarea Maritime is a port that Herod built and actually brought in a ton of money to that kingdom and to Augustus. So, Augustus was pretty happy with that. So, the first one was uh, Caesarea Maritime. That's what it's called. The second one is a place called Sebasti or Sebastia or Sebastios. Depends on who's writing it and how they're pronouncing it. This was the ancient city of Samaria. Okay, and that's in the central area. It's not even really in the time of the Jewish area. It was in Samaria. And then the third one is at a place called Caesarea Philippi, or in those days called Panius or Panium, after the Greek god Pan. Okay, now notice something. They're all given a name based on the person who they're honoring. Caesarea Maritime. It's dedicated to the Caesar. Then, what King Herod did was he went to the city of Samaria and he changed the name to Sebastia. And what does Sebastia mean? Well, it's the Greek word for the Latin Augustus. So he changes the name of a, a city that had had Samaria had been the name of that city for a thousand years, and he changes it to Sebastia, which is Augustus, right, in honor of Caesar Augustus. And then finally, there's a city called Panius. Now, eventually, Herod the Great's son, Philip, is going to get a portion of the kingdom. And what he does is he puts his capital city at a place that we know today, Caesarea Philippi, and that means it's Philip's Caesarea. So he wants to name it after the Caesar who's giving him power, but there's already a Caesarea on the coast. I mean, this same thing we find with Antioch, right? There's Antioch of Pisidia, because there's like seven or eight or nine Antiochs, because every time this, the king, Antiochus, would, would found a city, they would name it Antioch of something. Okay, but you get my point. These cities are given honorific names to the Caesar. Okay, so let me show you on a map. Uh, this, this should at least help maybe orient you. Uh, this is the land of Israel, and Jerusalem is right where that star is. So it's up, Jerusalem's up in the mountains, just to the west of the Dead Sea. That's that blue blob you see uh, to the right of Jerusalem and that star. Now we see the city of Caesarea Maritime, right there on the coast, which we refer to today as Caesarea, but if you want to distinguish it between 
Caesarea Philippi, it's Caesarea Maritime. This is a port that, I mean, it's an amazing um, feat of engineering that Herod the Great did. He built a port, and then that provided then an ability to bring in goods and services to Israel. So Caesarea, right there on the coast, you have the city of Sebastia, which used to be Samaria. That's in the middle. Uh, th that was in what was in Jesus' day, Samaria. And then way up to the north, Caesarea Philippi. Now, it's important to recognize that the two main ways of coming in and out of that country through the port that's on the sea, Caesarea Maritime, and then through Caesarea Philippi, because this northern route, you either come down from Damascus or you go out north to Damascus. That's the main road in and out of Herod's kingdom underneath the Roman Empire. And so what Herod is doing, when you get off the boat at Caesarea Maritime, who's Lord in this country? Well, there's the temple to Caesar Augustus. And you would say, ah, Caesar is Lord in this country, because there's the temple you can make an offering. If you're coming south from Damascus, and the first place you hit is that region of Caesarea Philippi, who's Lord in this country? And what Herod the Great is telling you is, Caesar is Lord in this country. Again, drive those religious Jews nuts that this has happened, okay? But it's important to notice, it's in those, uh, the, at least for those two, it's the area of where you enter and exit the country. Okay, so let's go take a look. Now, it doesn't look like much on the screen. This is Caesarea Maritime. Again, doesn't look exactly like it's um, too impressive, but archaeologically, that's where Caesar's uh, temple was. Right when you get off that boat, he's going to show you again who's Lord. The second one, Sebastia. And this was the ancient city of Samaria. Now, this one looks much more like a a temple, and then I'll show you where the, the last one is, and it looks similar to that. So this is the temple in Sebastia, and Josephus confirms that a temple was put there to Caesar Augustus, and of course they changed the name of the city. And then, let's go to the last one, way up here in the north, and this is the one for a long time that archaeologists could not confirm. Now there's controversy, there always is in archaeology, despite what people may think, but we know it's near the city of Caesarea Philippi. The question is, how close do you get down to those worship sites that I'll show you in a minute? But there was one, Josephus tells us, up to the north near Caesarea Philippi. When we go back to this photo here, in the city that's called today Amrit, you look in the background there, and what do we have? Well, from far away, it doesn't look like much. But when you come up closer, you can tell you've got, a, you've got an impressive temple-like structure. And one of the things that Herod did, he had a very distinctive style for carving the stones. Like if you go to the Western Wall today, those stones are carved in a distinctive Herod style. And so when you find that distinctive Herod style, you say, ah, this was commissioned by Herod the Great. Now. The other way that you know this is not just some random temple in the middle of nowhere in a hillside, because you kind of think, why, why did they put this here in the, on the hillside? 
you look at the carving, you know, archaeologists, they can figure out the date based on the way that the designs were, but you also say that took a lot of money. There was skilled labor involved here. Okay. So, what they believe, scholars now believe today, is what they found here at Amrit is a temple, the final, the third temple that we know about from Josephus is the temple to Caesar Augustus. Okay? Now, let me show you. Archaeologists have recreated a drawing of what they believe it would look like. If you go to the museum, the Israel Museum that's in Jerusalem, you'll see a photo like this, or a painting. Now, this is an artist rendering, because there's things we know from coins about this particular temple. And then when they find the site at Amrit, they can confirm they're looking at what are the sizes. Again, you had later emperors came in and they did further improvements to the site, but this is what they think it would have looked like initially. Okay? So travelers coming in from Damascus or travelers going out would be able to stop off and make an offering to Caesar Augustus. Okay? So, again, we go back to that Flavius Josephus and what he writes about, and I'll show you right here. This is, and I have all of these. If you look at the footnotes on the handout, if you have a copy of Josephus or you want to Google it, uh, I put down whether it's in the Antiquities or the Jewish Wars, what book it is, what chapter, and then the marker for the writing. And so what it says here is that Caesar further bestowed upon him an additional country. So Caesar's giving Herod the Great more land. So what did he do? He built a temple of white marble hard by the foundations of the Jordan. Now that's close to the foundations of the Jordan. I'll show you that in a minute. This place is called Panium. Now, Panium is the way he writes it out. That's for the Greek god Pan. But today, we would say, or at least we recognize it as Panius. Now, Panius, if actually, if you go there today, see, Arabs don't have P, they have B. So if you go there today, it's called Banius with a B. But that's an ancient name, Panius, for the Greek god Pan. Then turned into Caesarea Philippi. And What's really cool, I mean, if you've been to Israel, you have probably stopped at this place. Most tours do. It is truly remarkable because there's a tall mountain, Mount Hermon. The water comes through that limestone, and literally today it gushes right out of the side of the mountain. And that's one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. There's a few of them. But in Jesus' day, this cave back here was the place that the water came out of. And then apparently what had happened was there was an earthquake. It shifted the flow of water. doesn't come out of there today. But this becomes a worship site for the god Pan. So if you go up on that little shelf, you have built into the side of the rock, you have niches and grottos, and there's foundations for Pan worship. And for a long time, scholars had placed the Temple to Caesar right here by the entrance to that cave, but others said, you know, it's just not the right size. It just doesn't look right. You can't force fit that. But we didn't know any better until 1998. And then you say, well, how close is Amrit to Caesarea Philippi? 
2.7 miles. Now that's, I'm putting it in miles, a little less than three miles. Here's Caesarea Philippi right next to the uh, base of Mount Hermon. Here's Omri, and it sits out. And so if you're walking through what's called the Hula Valley, and you look up to your left, there is a marble temple sitting on the hill. So they're quite close. And what was really helpful about finding that temple um, where it is today is scholars had long wondered, where did the road turn to the north-northeast and start heading to Damascus? And so what, the way you, you would say this is, from that, the point you leave the land of Israel or Herod's kingdom, you're now on the Damascus road. And so Paul, he would have walked up north, past the Sea of Galilee, up through the Hula Valley. Then he would have taken a right to try to get to Damascus. And it's after he passes this temple that he would have been then on the Damascus road. And that's where he has his encounter with Jesus. So they're very close. Okay? And again, just remember what, what Herod is telling you, right? Who's Lord in this land? And then you're able to make an offering of incense to Augustus. Okay, now let's bring this together with Jesus and his disciples. And it's a very interesting way of looking at the text. And sometimes I feel like we don't encourage enough questioning not in a denialist way, questioning, but asking difficult questions of the text, okay? For instance, why does Jesus walk his disciples north to Caesarea Philippi, or at least the region of Caesarea Philippi, to teach them a lesson where he's going to ask, who do you say that I am? What is it about that area that a question like this makes sense to ask it there? Now, if you pull up Google Maps and you say Capernaum, down at the Sea of Galilee, to Caesarea Philippi, it's about 32 miles, uh, 52 kilometers. Why walk all that way? And oh, by the way, you know, it's all uphill. So how long did it take them to walk the 30 miles? Did they do it in a day? Did they do it in two days? Where did they stop over? What did they talk about along the way? We have no idea. They certainly didn't take the synagogue van up. So how long does it take them to walk? Why does he walk? The, why is this the field trip to go to? And these are the questions. And sometimes God will show you something that has to do with questions like this. So one of the things that, about Jesus' teaching, because he's a first century rabbi, he always has a purpose to where he's going and what he's going to tell you when he gets there. And Jesus teaches very concretely. He doesn't do abstractions. So he's not somewhere completely away from whatever it is that he's talking about. He wants to talk about it when it's right in front of you. And so there's something there at Caesarea Philippi that he's going to start asking these questions. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's about to send his disciples out into the Roman Empire, where the person in charge 
has the same titles as Jesus himself. And you then are going to have to engage that as a disciple. And so this is a lesson. It's a training lesson for them to go out into that world. Okay? And so let's look at Matthew. I'll show you. Because we want to notice something about Matthew. So it's Matthew 16, verse 13. It starts like this. Now, when Jesus came into the parts, now that happens, parts sounds a little strange to us. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, well, how close is he? How close is he to, the, to Herod's palace? How close is he to the city where all the, or where the um, worship of Pan is? Does that mean he's one mile, two miles, three miles? So when Jesus came into the parts, the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man, that goes back to Daniel, that heavenly figure that's sharing a throne with God. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he goes on, this is now verse 15. He says to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? It's the important question here. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Now, Christ, in Hebrew, that's a Messiah. You're the one who's coming to reign, the anointed one by God who's going to reign and judge. And then notice, you're the Son. Now, who's that in the front to? Caesar, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, why does Peter have to mention the word living? Doesn't every Jew know that God is a living God? Of course they do. He doesn't have to put in living. But he does. And I think this is exactly what Jesus did. He walked them 28 miles or so, however far it ended up being, for one lesson. And I can envision Jesus standing on the side of the road, the temple's behind him, so they're looking over his shoulder. They know who that temple's for. It's for someone who claims to be the Son of God. And then he starts questioning them. And I think here that what Peter is doing, he's critiquing. Julius Caesar is not still alive. Now, at this time, it would be Tiberius. So he would, you would be saying, Augustus, he died. He's died and dead. He's not still living. They're not sons of a living God, like the Jewish God. That's propaganda. Because remember, the propaganda says that Tiberius, who, by the way, you know, by the end of his reign, he had, he'd gone way off the path. Anyways, you can read about that in some of the Roman writers. It's not flattering. And then, of course, after that was Caligula, and it got even worse. So, but you can see what they're doing. They're perpetuating the myth by calling this, the current Caesar the son of a god. And, and Peter knows it. Oh no, that god is dead. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Okay? And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's going to show you that this exists in the world. So he just walks you right up to it. Now I'm going to switch here because I want to show you. I think there's a deep 
There's a deep and profound lesson here for our spiritual well-being. Okay, I'm going to switch to Mark because Mark mentions a detail that Matthew doesn't. Okay, so it's Mark 8, verse 34. And so what Mark says is this, He called the crowd to himself with his disciples and said to them, Now, crowd? What crowd? Who's there? And you can imagine if, they, if he walks them up to that temple, who's there? Well, maybe they're Jews. Maybe they're Herodians, the Jews that supported Herod. There were Jews that supported the Roman Empire. So maybe there's Jews. There's probably pagans. Who's in there worshiping the Caesar? So he called to the crowd. And he says to them, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The path to peace is through responsibility. You pick up your cross and carry it. That's how you follow Jesus. You accept the inherent suffering in the world, and you're not looking for a Caesar to try to fix it. And then he says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the good news. Notice he mentions good news right here. That you will save it. If you lose yourself for Jesus, you actually save your life. Okay? Then he goes on to say, For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What if you're worshiping Caesar to try to gain power in this kingdom, but in doing that, you lose your soul? Verse 37, Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? Now, this leads us into something. Again, it's deep. It's a very profound idea. It's talking about the soul of a human being, the immaterial part of you that lives on beyond this body, that's going to live in the heavenly realms and be uh, subjected to the forces of the heavenly realms, which you perhaps are not being subjected to right now. Okay, let me give you, let me give you the, the spiritual principle. So number six on your handout. The spiritual principle says that your soul will reflect that which you worship. And again, you know, how do we describe the human soul? It's everything that's immaterial inside of you. Now, God made us body, mind, soul, and spirit. So you're not saying the body is bad. That was the Gnostics' way of thinking about it. That's not the Jewish way of thinking about it, and it's not the Christian way of thinking about it. Body's not bad. God created the body too. But now we have to live as an embodied soul. Okay? Our soul is made of spirit. It's, at least to us today, immaterial. Perhaps one day we'll have a way to, to measure that. But this is what happens now. This is what's who do you worship, right? And we're going to set these next to each other. Because if Jesus is the Son of the living God, and he is the Son of Man, the one from Daniel 7, who joins God on the throne. Daniel sees that vision, and one like the Son of Man. And now you have a heavenly being. 
that is reigning with God, that's the Son of Man. And that Son of Man will judge. And because Jesus is sinless, he's able to judge the sins of the world. Now, what is the Son of Man? What is this heavenly figure that the prophets see in the heavenly realm? It's the image of God, right? Doesn't Paul tell us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? So, this gets into a metaphysical problem that we have, right? We know that there's God, but God says, look, I don't have an image or a form. But then you, as a human being, oh, well, by the way, you're made in the image of God. Well, what's going on here? How, how can I be made in the image of a God that has no image or form? And so what you see is there's this heavenly being. That's the one in the vision of Ezekiel. That's the one in the vision of Daniel. That something in the heavens is what we reflect. When God created Adam and Eve perfect, it's in reflection of this heavenly being, or as Paul calls it, a heavenly man. Okay? And so you have God who has no image, and what comes out of that, when God manifests himself into the physical world, he manifests himself as a body, as a human being. This is what they call the Son of Man, the Christ, or again, as Paul says, the heavenly man. This is the one whose image Adam and Eve were made in. And this is the one whose image we were made in. So that all of humanity bears the image of God. And Paul even tells us, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Check it out. Paul says that we are supposed to bear the image of the heavenly man. That's the perfect, it's like the archetypal human soul that is in the heavens is what we're made in. Now, it's not our body, because every body is a little bit different, but it's your soul. And when you worship Jesus, then, this is the whole point, you begin to be transformed into the image of God, because Jesus is the image of God. We begin to transform into the image that God actually intended us to be. We conform into Christ likeness. And it's all the way down to the base of your soul. And so that you don't lose your soul when you worship Jesus, you actually strengthen your soul. You begin to reflect what a soul is supposed to look like. Now, the question then is, what happens to us when we worship Caesar? What is Caesar all about? It's power. People seek power in their lives. When we've talked about the goal of the Roman Empire is peace through victory. It's war and victory, and then we'll find peace. It's war instead of forgiveness, which will actually transform your soul. It's victory instead of justice. And this is what human beings want. We seek social status and control of wealth, because with the control of wealth, we can even control other people and feel more powerful. And when we worship power in that human form, other principles fall away. Truth. In the worship of power, truth matters only so much as it serves to get you more power. 
so you go ahead and lie. If it's convenient, if it helps you maintain your power, who cares about the truth, right? Justice. It only matters if it's convenient for me to keep my power, or whatever perceived power I think I'm getting. And folks, we see this all the time. In politics, in anything that you can gain a lot of wealth or power, people lose their soul in an effort to keep the power, right? And we see this, I mean, this is particularly prominent in politics because a politician gains power. And then very often they can lose their soul in that power through lying and deceit. And they can even bring others into that program of trying to protect the politician. And so that other people are now giving up the principles that actually matter in the world. I mean, heck, we even see this in the church, unfortunately. Right? When people in the church try to cover up scandals in order to protect whatever power they, they see as having. And this is not just, I mean, we had the sexual abuses in the Catholic Church, and it's covered up all the time as the church is trying to protect its power and its wealth. But it even happens in smaller churches. When, say, the pastor is the one who, he's the, he's, he's the one who lays the golden eggs. He brings all the people there, and that's what keeps our church alive. Boy, if we allow this scandal out, we might lose people. It's like, well, what happens to the justice? What happens to truth? And it can easily get subverted when we're worried about power. So what happens, as we keep reading Matthew 16 and we're looking at this, what we see is that when you worship the Son of Man, the Messiah, you begin to conform to the image of God. Well, what happens if you don't? Well, you're, you distort the image of God. You no longer reflect. This is part of the problem with people who have sinned so much, who have gone so far astray, they no longer reflect the, the image of God that they're supposed to. Okay, so when we, when we keep reading in Matthew 16, it says that the Son of Man will come in glory with shine, that shining power. He's going to come back, and he's going to pay back everyone for what they've done. What did you do with your soul? Okay. What if you could gain the whole world with power? Would it be worth it for the loss of your soul? Okay, so when we go back to that in Mark, we see that it's, it's all about what are you doing with your soul? Who is your soul reflecting? The Son of Man, that heavenly man, that's Jesus, came into the, he incarnated into the flesh. Does our soul reflect that? Or does our soul reflect the things in this world, the non-heavenly part that people worship? And so, so much of this lesson today is the question, Jesus walks them up to a place to say, who do you say that I am? Because he is going to send them out into a world where you can very easily switch and say that someone else is Lord. Do we elevate Jesus and him and his Christ or his likeness as our object of worship? And if we do, and when we do, we begin to transform. Our soul transforms to be just like Jesus. Okay, it's an incredibly deep message as Jesus is about to send his disciples out 
they're going to have to go head to head and can and convince people not just through theological arguments but showing them in testimony that Jesus is the real son of man messiah son of god and that he is reigning right now in his kingdom and i think what happened to people is once they made Jesus the object of their worship their soul began to be transformed and it's that experience that gives you the testimony to say things like i was blind but now i see my life used to be like this but now it's like this well prove it to me on the spreadsheet i can't i'm testifying to you that it used to be like this and now it's no longer and i found peace this is what they're going to have to do head to head with that roman empire and our job as christians is to open our soul up to the power of god so that he will transform us into the image that we were meant to be if we can only have the courage to open ourselves up to god to allow him to do that